Let me just by, begin by thanking you for the invitation to uh, be here with you this evening. As I said, it's been a great privilege for me to take part in the annual family conference this past week, and uh, what an honor as well to be able to come to Kabwata Baptist Church and preach here too. So thank you so much. Very uh, honored to uh, have the invitation. We're going to look at a couple of passages this evening. Uh, first is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. going to read verse 17 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 after that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 going to read from verse 12 to verse 16, and the verse we want to particularly focus on this evening is verse 15. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Amen. Let's begin by turning to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we delight to be with your people. We delight to be in your house. We delight, most of all, to be in your presence and under the sound of your word. And so we ask, O God, that you would help us now as we apply our minds to Holy Scripture, enable us to cast aside the worries and fears, the cares which are pressing into our minds, which perhaps we've brought from the world outside. Help us, O Lord, to focus and to marshal all our powers of concentration and to worship you in the hearing of your word. We pray that you would speak and that you would give us ears to hear. O Lord, we pray, speak. Gracious God, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a story once about a man called Kenny MacDonald who lived on the Isle of Lewis. That's off the coast of Scotland. This was back in the 1950s. And there was a revival there, a genuine revival. It was a work of the Spirit convicting people of sin and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. And Kenny MacDonald, he was about uh, 29 years old at the time. And his life at that point was really all about living for pleasure, for drinking, going to dances, that sort of thing. But he wasn't happy in his life. And then one time his aunt, who was a Christian, invited him to an after-church meeting. They have those in that part of Scotland. 
And the speaker was going to be a man called Duncan Campbell, a visiting minister who came to the home and he spoke to the group there on Jesus' words from John 14, I am the way. And Kenny was there and he heard those words and they seared their way into his heart. Well, the time came in the evening when the preacher said, now a room will be cleared and those who have come to the place where you feel that nothing in this world can satisfy your heart, please get up and make your way there. I cannot convert anyone, but God can, and he will fill the longings of your soul. Well, the thought of standing up and going into that room filled Kenny with horror because it was a small community and everybody knew who he was and they knew the kind of life that he lived. But suddenly he felt an amazing strength and he stood up and in his heart he found himself saying, Lord, if you'll take me, I'll come now. And that night in his aunt's home, Kenny came to faith in Jesus Christ. Afterward, he said, I never, ever look back. God saved me that night in the house, and he will never hear the end of it. I will praise him throughout eternity for his patience and grace with a sinner like me. You know, I like that. God saved me that night, and he will never hear the end of it. Uh, that, isn't that the response of every true child of God when we think about what God has done for us, his unbounded grace and mercy to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ? Isn't that the way that we should respond to, that really eternity will hardly be long enough to adequately praise him for the greatness and wonder of what he's done? Because salvation is one of those wonders. It's a wonder work of God. You know how God is described as a God of wonders. That's in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Moses' description of our Lord there as a God who is able to do wonder, wonderful things, a God of wonders, things which amaze us, things which astonish us, things which are very often way beyond anything that we can even imagine or think. And of course, salvation is one of those. Salvation is one of the great wonder works of God, how he is able in his grace and mercy to impart new life, to a soul that's dead in trespasses and sins. What is that? that that's, a, that's a wonder. That's a miracle of grace. And it's something we find Paul here setting forth in these verses that we've read. 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16, where Paul is describing for us something of the wonder work of God that he's done in his own life, summarizing it in one of these faithful, trustworthy sayings, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We're going to spend some time looking at this verse this evening, along with a number of other um, related texts, as well as, as we consider this theme of the wonder of salvation. And so we've got three, three main headings this evening. Three divine wonders, we could say, that are involved in God's work in salvation. And the first is the wonder of the incarnation. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the first part to this. This is the first wonder that Paul refers to here. It is the wonder of the incarnation, the wonder that Jesus Christ came into this world. Now, where was it? Where was it that he came from? The Bible tells us he came down. He came down to us, down from heaven, down from the heights of glory, down to us, leaving behind the glory that he had with his Father from all eternity, even before the creation of the world. Do you remember how John puts it in his gospel, describing that scene from all eternity, in the beginning was the Word. That's our Lord. 
That's our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Word. He was there with God in the beginning. The Word was God and the Word was with God. And that word with there implies closeness. It implies intimacy. It implies nearness. That's what he had with the Father. He had closeness and intimacy. Face to face, that can even be translated as. That's the relationship that they had from all eternity. Face to face, the Father with the Son. He's the only begotten Son. John 1 verse 18, which is in the bosom of the Father. So it's that kind of thing. That's where he was. That was the glory that he enjoyed from all eternity past. And that's where he came from. He came down from heaven. He came down from that glory down to us into this world in human form. As John goes on to say in verse 14 of that chapter, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Meaning, of course, that he took a human body. This is the wonder of the Incarnation. The Eternal Son took to himself a human nature and joined it to his divine nature. So that in him, you have two natures, one person. Fully God, fully man. Fully human, fully divine. Not mixed, not mingled. The human nature doesn't overpower the divine nature. The divine nature doesn't overpower his human nature. They're both perfect and distinct, unmixed, unmingled, and of course entirely free from sin and the sinful corruption that comes upon every other person born into this world. Now Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, he doesn't have the taints and the pollution of human sin. He's sinless. And impeccable in every way. Which is why he was born to Mary, a young girl who the Bible says hadn't known a man. But rather would conceive as the angel informs her by the power of the Most High overshadowing her. So that's referring to the presence, the powerful presence of God coming down, resting upon her, enabling her then to conceive. Not by the normal natural process of procreation. This is something supernatural. This is something divine. This is a wonder. The creating influence of God by His Spirit moving within the womb of Mary to form the Christ child within. This is something divine. This is a wonder. An incredible, miraculous, unrepeatable, unprecedented event so that Christ, as he's born into this world, he has a perfect human nature, entirely free from the sinful corruption that would be passed on by a human father. And also, of course, it's the essential mark of who he is. He's the God-man. He's God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. God come to earth in human form, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. That's an amazing thing. That's a wonder, isn't it? The Word becoming flesh. God himself being born as a babe in a manger and then growing as a man as well with all the limitations that that entails, that he would become hungry the way that you and I do, that he would become thirsty the way that you and I do, that he would become weary as well. The eternal Son of God, thinking, think, think of that. He became so weary, he could actually fall asleep in a boat. That's what we're talking about here. It's the amazing, astonishing wonder of the Incarnation. Grudem, in his systematic theology, says this. He says, It is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible 
far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man, it will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. That's quite a statement, that, isn't it? The most amazing, most profound mystery in all the universe. And so, shouldn't, shouldn't we spend a bit more time thinking about it than really we do? What, why is it we don't really think about it very much? Isn't it because we're just so familiar with it? Uh, we've heard the story so often, the Christmas story, the nativity and all of these kind of things. And because of that, it doesn't really impact us anymore. We're so familiar with it. A few years ago, I had opportunity to visit um, an Indian brother, Samuel Bhopuri, in um, uh, Hyderabad, uh, down in Andhra Pradesh. And uh, there was a, a, a conference going on there, and we went to that. And then afterwards, he took me on a train, and we went up to Delhi. And then we went from there across to Agra to see the Taj Mahal. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And to see it, you know, shimmering under the heat of the Indian sun, it, it really does take your breath away. You know, oh, wow. You, you say, oh, wow. Well, I did. But the guide who was showing us around, he didn't. He didn't even look at it, I don't think. He'd seen that thing a thousand times. Didn't even look at it. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. He's so familiar with it, didn't even take a second look. And isn't that the way we can be with the incarnation? We're so used to it. The Christmas story, the narratives, the, uh, the cards, the nativity scenes, and all of that sort of things. We, we hardly even think about it, but we should. It's a wonder. It's an amazing miracle that Jesus Christ would come into this world and be born of a virgin, and also he would join his divine nature to a human nature. God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. That's what we're thinking about here this evening. It's the wonder of God's work in salvation. That's the first thing. The wonder of the incarnation. Now secondly, consider this. The wonder of the atonement. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what he came to do, to save sinners. He's Christ Jesus. Christ, he's the anointed one. He's Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is another wonder work of God. It's the way that God saves us from our sins. It's the wonder of the atonement because sin needs to be atoned for. Sin is the problem, isn't it? Adam's sin and also our own actual committed sin. It's come between us and God. It's put a, an obstacle between us and God. It's made us, the Bible says, to be enemies, enemies with God. It's made us to be at war with God. And the only way for that war then to come to an end is by a work of atonement. Now, it's interesting, the word atonement, how we get that word, it goes back to William Tyndale and his translation of the New Testament back in the 16th century. And he was trying to think of a, of a word that would really express the way that the removal of sin does that, how the removal of the offense of sin brings us back to God, how it makes us at one with God. And he was trying to think of a word to express that, to make us at one, at one with God, at one, at one-ment, at one, at atonement, atonement. That's what happens when sin is dealt with. When sin is paid for and the offense is taken out of the way, then God and man can come back together again. God and man at table have sat down. That wonderful hymn, I'd never heard that before until the other night. What a wonderful hymn. 
God and man at table have sat down. That's it, isn't it? Atonement. And how does that happen? It's only through Jesus Christ, the God-man. It's in him we have redemption, the Bible says. It's in him we have atonement, at one moment. He brings us back to God. That's why we read 2 Corinthians 5. God was in Christ reconciling. That means bringing back together. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How? By not imputing their trespasses to them, trespasses, you know this, don't you? It means sins, it means transgressions, it's our offenses against a holy God. At the moment, if we're unconverted, if we're outside of Jesus Christ, they are imputed to us. They are. If you're unconverted, they're all honest, they're all posted to your accounts like a credit card statement. If you have one of those and it comes through the mail and you open it up and there's your name at the top and then you have all those charges listed uh, underneath. And it's, it's your bill. It's your statement. You are legally responsible to pay those charges. And so it is for us as sinners. If we're unconverted and outside of Jesus Christ, we have charges. Oh, so many charges. Millions upon millions of them. Sins and transgressions against our holy God. And we will have to pay for them. In eternity, in hell, we will have to pay for each and every one unless... Unless someone else pays them for us, and there's only one person who can do that, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why he came into the world, to pay the price of sin. So that the sin that's imputed to us, well, if we're Christians, those sins are now made over to him. They're now posted to him. They're posted to his account. They're charged to his account, or to use the Old Testament language, they're laid. They're laid on him. You know the, uh, the imagery there, it's of the, uh, the Old Testament there and uh, what the people would do in Old Testament times, they would come to the priest at the entrance to the tabernacle and they'd bring with them an animal for sacrifice, a bull or a goat or a lamb and they would uh, bring an unblemished animal and then uh, they would stand there and then the, the individual of the families would lay their hands on the head of the beast and they would confess their sins signifying a transfer now. Guilt now is being transferred. It's in being imputed now to the sacrifice. And then the animal was put to death. It had to be because it's bearing sin. And that's the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so that's what they would do. And the process then is designed to point us to Jesus Christ, to what God was doing in Christ, reconciling sinners to himself through the perfect lamb, the spotless lamb, the one who Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, knew no sin. That verb to know means having no personal acquaintance with. Jesus had none. Absolutely no personal acquaintance with sin. In thought or word or deed, he was absolutely perfect. He was holy, harmless and undefiled. And yet, Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's the imputation. That's our sin if we believe it's being imputed to him. It's being posted to his account. Jesus was made to be sin for us. Made to be sin. That's all of his people's sin in all its blackness and foulness and stench all being heaped upon his head there at the cross, all laid upon our Lord Jesus Christ there. I once heard Jeff Thomas put it like this. He said that on Good Friday, when God went looking for sin, he found it all in one place. It was all there. All his people's sin was there on the head 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he visited it there with judgment, didn't he? Like the sun's rays being refracted through a magnifying glass so that its burning ray consumes the object on the ground. That's what happened. All of God's wrath for his people's sin visited there upon the head of Jesus Christ. As our sins are posted to his account, and this is the thing, this is the thing here, they, they were posted to his account and they were paid for. He pays for it. That's why he cries, it is finished. It is finished. That word is a word from the marketplace that they would cry when a, when a debt was finally paid, when it was finally settled. So tell us, it's finished. The debt is cancelled now. It's paid. It's cleared. So that when God looks upon us now, he sees us as if we've never, ever sinned. He looks upon us and all our transgressions, like red like crimson, are washed white as snow because he's removed them, the Bible says, are far from us as east is from the west. What a wonder that is. But that's not all. Not only has he taken away all our sins, but at the same time, he's given us his perfect righteousness. It's a double imputation, if you like. He takes our sin upon himself and then gives us his righteousness in, for us in his place. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a thing that is. What a wonder that is. Not only is the slate wiped clean, but also into our account now comes infinite credit. Or boys and girls, uh, imagine a student in a class and uh, a failing student. He's doing his exam and he's got all wrong answers. He's got crossings out. He's got scribblings all over it. But then the A grade student comes and takes his paper and puts his perfect A plus paper in its place. So that his score is now given to the failing student. That's what happens for us. Perfect righteousness in God's sight. So God is no longer repelled by us and by our sin, but instead he welcomes us and he embraces us all for the sake of his son. What a wonder. This is the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the atonement. All our sins and offenses, our trespasses against our holy God, they can be dealt with just like that by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And listen to this, simply by looking to him, by faith, that's all you have to do. This is a wonder, isn't it? The moment we do that, the moment we look to him with true faith, the wrath of God which is hanging over us like the sword of Damocles waiting to fall, waiting to break, the moment you look to Jesus Christ with true faith, that wrath is gone. It's taken away forever. No more wrath. God is no longer an angry judge. Now he's a loving heavenly father, waiting, willing, eager to bless Uh, Morris Roberts, uh, he's put it like this in an article. He says, The wonder of the gospel is that the moment we rest our hopes on Jesus, the wrath of God will never come upon us. Never. The moment we put our trust in the gospel, God ceases to be angry with us. There are no more judicial dealings with any man. As soon as we put our trust in Christ, as soon as we weep for our sin, the anger is over. What a wonder. <laughs> The moment we truly repent, the moment we put faith in Christ, that's it. All, all our sins are gone. There's no record of them anymore. Past sins, present sins, future sins, all gone. It's all dealt with. We may still stumble. Sadly, we will still fall. But in God's sight, that slate is wiped absolutely clean. It's as if they never were. There's no record. Um, it's like that story of the man who bought himself a Rolls Royce. You know, uh, Rolls Royce. 
British car, obviously one of the finest on the planet. Um, and he decided to tour Europe in his Rolls Royce. And he was, he was going through Italy and uh, he had a breakdown. And n none of the mechanics in there really knew how to fix a Rolls Royce. And so he had to, this was many years ago, he had to send a cable, a, a telegram to Rolls Royce. And they immediately flew out a mechanic to come and fix it. And he was very pleased about that, but also as he was fixing it, he was thinking to himself, however much is this going to cost? They've flown a mechanic out to fix this thing. What, what, what kind of a charge am I going to get for this? But he never got a charge. And he was wondering about this, so in the end he wrote a letter to Rolls-Royce asking them what the charge was going to be. And he got a letter back from them, and the letter said, Dear sir, thank you so much for your letter. We would like to inform you that we have no record in our files that any Rolls-Royce has ever broken down at any place, at any time, for any reason. Well, that's how it is for us as believers, isn't it? There's no record of it anymore. No record. By the work of Jesus Christ at the cross, it's all been purged away. No record. My Christian friend, of your sins anywhere in heaven, it's gone. Not a trace. Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Wonder of wonders, isn't it? The terror of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hides. Hides all my transgressions from view. What, what an astonishing thing. What a wonder that is. Uh, sometimes I have opportunity to go to the Shepherds Conference in California. So it's a really wonderful conference. And um, one of my favorite parts in that conference is, I think it happens every year, about midway through the week, the, uh, John MacArthur leads the worship and they sing Horatio Spafford's hymn, When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Way. And uh, when it comes to, I think, the third stanza, John MacArthur signals to the piano to stop. And then you've got this whole conference full of men and they sing together, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That, that's it. In a moment like that, you capture the wonder of the atonement, the wonder work of God. He's dealt with our sins forever. Has he dealt with your sins? Can I ask you this evening? Has he? Because if not, there's still time. This wonder work of God is available to you right now. Do, do, do you realize what this means, what we're saying here? What this means is you can sit here this evening with a, a whole life of living without God, without hope in this world, having heaped up a mountain of sins and offenses against a holy God, sins which will, if not paid for, sink you down into eternity in hell, but they can be paid for right now, just like that. All of them done, paid for, simply with a look of faith to Jesus Christ. You can pass from death to life, from darkness to light, snatched from the brink of hell and made to be an heir of heaven. No longer under condemnation, made to be a blessed heir of salvation, all simply by a look, a look of faith to Jesus Christ. Oh, great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike and divine. So this is what we're thinking about this evening, the wonder of salvation. We've got three points, the wonder of the incarnation, the wonder of the atonement, finally, the wonder of the new birth. And here I want us to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, which although we don't have it explicitly in this text, I think we can draw this out by way of implication when you look at what Paul says there. 
He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul here is giving us some words of autobiography. He's referencing the change, that tremendous spiritual change that came about in his own life when, as he says there, he obtained mercy. So he's referring to the gracious dealings of God with him in stopping him in his tracks and turning him from his path of sin because we know what he was like before, don't we? Uh, He tells us in verse 13. He describes himself there as a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, that's the old English word, uh, insolent opponent, you might say, or perhaps a violent aggressor. That's what he was. He went around orchestrating, instigating fearful persecution of the church. Acts chapter 8 verse 3, Saul was ravaging or wasting the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9 verse 1, we we read of him breathing out threatenings and slaughter. What a phrase that is. Dragging people from their homes, binding them up and having them thrown into prison. He was a ferocious, merciless persecutor of the church. That was the kind of man he was. And then Paul, or Saul, as he was, he came to Jesus Christ. Or as he says in verse 13 there, I received mercy. Mercy found him. Mercy stopped him in his tracks as he was on his way on that Damascus road to round up more Christians, to persecute them. There on that road, the risen Lord Jesus Christ stopped him on the road, took him off his hellbound course, turned him around, and he's amazingly, amazingly transformed. The persecutor becomes a preacher. The enemy of Christ becomes an evangelist. The slanderer of Christ becomes a servant of Jesus Christ. Behold, they say, look at him. He's preaching the faith which once he sought to destroy. He's he's trying to build up now the church which once he sought to ravage and waste. How can that be? How does something like that happen? It's the God of wonders, isn't it? Enabling and bringing about new birth. New birth. Again, that's why we read that parallel passage, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Brand new is what that word means. A brand new creation. Something that wasn't there before has now been created. Just like back at creation. Another of those wonder works of God. Creation ex nihilo. We sometimes use that phrase, don't we? Creation from nothing. What was there in the beginning? There was nothing. It was just all uh, void and space and darkness. But then God spoke into that void and said, let there be light. And there was light. Creation from nothing. That's what God did in physical creation. And it's also what he does in the soul at conversion. Again, it's, it's creation ex nihilo. Creation from nothing. 2 Corinthians 4. Just as God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, so he's referencing Genesis 1 there, so also he has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he's saying spiritually it's the same principle. There's nothing there. There's empty void, blackness, darkness, no light, no life. All is dead spiritually. But then into that darkness, God comes and he speaks. And he says, let there be light. And there is light. So that suddenly there on the Damascus road, suddenly spiritual light and life breaks forth into the soul of Saul. And there's a new creation now. A brand new creation. Old things pass away. That's old ways of thinking. 
old ways of living, the things that we used to live for and love, those things are gone. They've passed away. It's aorist tense. It's a decisive, completed action in the past, done, gone, past. The things which once we love, we hate now. The things which once we hated, we love now. Old things have passed. Behold, all things have become new. And again, that means brand new in all respects. So we have a new view of Jesus Christ now, new view of others, also a new view of ourselves. And that's Paul. Think about Paul in this regard. How did he used to view himself? Well, he tells us in Philippians 3, doesn't he? He was very proud. He was very proud of his uh, religious background and his uh, accomplishments and his pedigree. Um, Philippians 3, circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the law of Pharisee. That was his resume. Very impressive one as well, if you were a Pharisee. And he did. He prided himself on it. But that was the old man. That was the old nature, the old life. But now he's new. He's brand new. He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So now he's got a new view of others. And he's also got a new view of himself and his own sin, and his own corruption. So he no longer sees himself as some kind of a religious elite. Now he sees himself as sinner-in-chief. The first, the foremost of sinners, he says. It's interesting to note the, uh, the spiritual trajectory that you see Paul on in the New Testament. When he writes to the Corinthians, first of all, that's around 55 AD, he calls himself the least of the apostles. Then five years later, when he's writing to the Ephesians, he calls himself the least of all the saints. Now, five years on, he's writing to Timothy. He calls himself the chief, the chief of sinners. And it's not, I was, I am. I am the chief of sinners. What is it that does that? What is it that works a change in a person like that that makes a proud religious man into a humble, self-abasing, spiritual man? It's the new birth. This is the wonder of regeneration. It's God's new creating, new life creating work in the soul of man. That's what makes a Saul into a Paul. That's what makes a man who's a murderer now into a missionary. It's the wonder work of God. And not just in Paul, but ever since then, God has continued to do that wonder work in countless lives of equally lost and hardened sinners. Just to give you an example, I was reading a, a Christian newspaper from the UK a few weeks back, and it had in it a testimony of a man called Wayne Probert, and the testimony was entitled, From Bare Knuckle Fighter to Sunday School Teacher. And uh, this man, Wayne, he had a tough upbringing. He grew up in a Welsh mining town, and uh, his dad died when he was quite young. He got bullied a lot at school, but in the end, the, 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 the bullying sort of toughened him up, and he learned to fight back. And it, by the time he got into his teens, he, he was a pretty tough young character and uh, he was known as the local hard man and lads from other towns in the area would come down to this Welsh town where he was and go to the pub where he was and they would take him on and uh, he would invariably win the street fights. He was uh, known as a local hard man. Well a couple of years ago he was walking his dog along a used railway track and he met an old friend of his called Colin who also had a reputation of being a bit of a hard man and they got into conversation but Colin told him an astonishing thing that he'd become a Christian and that God had totally changed his life. And he invited Wayne to come to church with him. And Wayne just shook his head and walked away in disbelief at the conversation he just had. 
but he couldn't get it out of his mind. And he kept thinking, if God can change a man like him, maybe he can change me. And so in the end, he did go to church with Colin. And he kept on going until one night the pastor spoke on the blood of the lamb. And he came to see that blood had been shed for him. And so he uh, called his pastor. He says in the uh, testimony, normally after our weekly men's meeting, I usually go straight to bed as I have to get up at 5 a.m. for work. This night I couldn't sleep. I will never forget it. I called Pastor John from my bed at 11.30 and told him something's happened. I know it's true. I know it's all true. A work of grace had been done in his life. He was a new creation. Old things had passed away. Things really were new. He says this. Some months later, I had a near miss in the car. The gentleman in the other car was very angry. He stopped, got out of the car, slammed the door. He came running at me for a fight. I was so tempted to go back to my old ways, but instead, I grabbed him by the shirt to restrain him and calmly explained that if it were not for Jesus Christ working in my life, he would be in hospital right now. The man quietly went back to his car. I now take gospel tracts with me to give out if anything like this happens again. Jesus has showed me a better way, and I'm not going back to who I was. Since then, my faith has grown stronger and stronger. I'm now at the door every Sunday morning, welcoming people into church. I run the homeless work. I've also become a Sunday school teacher, and I'm in training to become a deacon. I meet old friends who cannot believe the change in me. Then he says this, the truth is I am a different person now. The world can see it, and it's all down to Jesus Christ. What I say to people is simple. If God can change my life, he can change anyone's. And it's it's interesting that he says that, because that's really what Paul is saying here, isn't it? God has worked the wonder of the new birth in his life, and he's done it, Paul says, as sort of a pattern. A pattern, you see it there, don't you? This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief, first, foremost. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's saying it's a pattern. If God can save me, the chief, the foremost of sinners, he can save anyone. If he can make a murderer to be his servant, if he can make a blasphemer and a persecutor to be an apostle, there's no one who's beyond his reach. There's no one too far gone. There's no one too bad. No one too religious either. Because someone here might say, yeah, but you know, I'm not a violent person, I'm not an aggressive person, I've never been like that. No, but you might be a very religious person like... Paul was proud of his religion, proud of his background, trusting in his religion, thinking you're going to be saved by your religion and by your religious works and deeds. Saul was like that, but he had to be saved. He had to be saved from that. He had to be born again. He had to have a new creating work of God in his soul. Like Nicodemus, wasn't it, who came to Jesus at night and wanted to know what he had to do to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven and Jesus said, it's not by religion, it's not by your good deeds or by your good works, it's only by the new birth. The wonder of the new birth, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need to have this new creating work of God in your soul. You need to be born again, Nicodemus. You need to be born from above. You need to be born anew. These are all the terms the Bible uses, aren't they, to show us what salvation is. It's not just having some religion. It's not just going to church on Sunday. It's not having Christian parents. It's not going to a Christian school. It's not having Christian books on the bookshelf. You need the new birth. 
You need the life of God in the soul of man. You need to be a new creation in Jesus Christ so old things pass away, all things become new. Or to put it another way, you need a new heart. My unsafe friend, if there are any here this evening, you need a heart transplant. Has anyone ever told you that you do? You need a heart transplant because the heart you have is bad and it needs to be replaced. There was a heart surgeon from South Africa called Dr. Christian Barnard. He was the first ever surgeon to do a heart transplant. And after the surgery was performed, he asked his patient, who was also a doctor, Dr. Philip Blyberg, he asked him if he would like to see his old heart. And he said he would. So a couple of days later, he took him into his office and he took down this large glass jar off the shelf and in it was his heart. And he passed it to him and he held it and he looked at it in stunned silence. And then he began to ply the doctor with all kinds of questions and then he took a last look at it and passed it back and said, so that's the heart that caused me so much trouble. And he turned and left it forever. Well, that's what Jesus Christ is saying to you, my unsaved friend this evening. You need a new heart spiritually. You need to be born again. You need to be born anew. And that's why Jesus Christ came. That's why he came into this world. That's why he went to the cross and all those things that we've mentioned this evening so that you could have the wonder of a new heart, so that you can have the wonder of a new start, a new life, walking with him, serving him, serving here with his people in this place. Come to him. Come to him tonight. Come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I need a new heart. I need a new heart. The one I've got is bad. It's rotten through and through. It's caused me nothing but trouble. Lord, give me a new heart. Give me a new start. And if you pray in that way, and if you mean it, if you mean it, he will. Because that's why he came. It's a faithful, trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Oh, great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike and divine. We praise you, O oh God, for the wonder of salvation and all that's involved in saving a human soul, the wonder of the incarnation and of the atonement and of the new birth. Oh Lord, as we've just reviewed these things tonight, Lord, our hearts rejoice at your magnificent wisdom your grace and your power. And we pray that you would be at work in our midst, even this night, that you would do that new life-creating work in our midst. And for those of us who've, by grace, already received that work, we pray, Lord, as we go from this place into the coming week, that our hearts would rejoice in all that you have done for us. We who also are the chief of sinners, Lord, what grace, what mercy. May we be lost in wonder, love, and praise. For Jesus' sake, amen.